Hi, this is Caden, and this is my daddy's podcast called Lasting Learning. Hi, this is Dave Schmidt, the host of the Lasting Learning Podcast. On this show, we talk to real people with real stories. We focus on the focus and discuss what matters most. Let's go. This podcast is a proud member of the Teach Better Podcast Network. Better today, better tomorrow, and the podcast to get you there. Explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com. Now let's get on to the episode. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Lasting Learning Podcast. This is the episode of all episodes. And I'm saying that before I even um, start the conversation. I'm saying it because I feel like I can retire now. Bucket lists are being met. Idols are being spoken to. They are incarnate. So if anybody disagrees, just listen to the rest of this episode. Because today I have one of the most transformative educators on the planet hanging out with me and I could not be happier. Let me just walk you through a little bit of his history before I share his name with you. So he, he had his early days, um, he started his early days living on a farm, um, raised by amazing parents, a World War II veteran, spent his summers in summer camp learning how to, to fall trees and sharpen an ax. His, uh, his formative years were transformative years struggled in traditional school, where when I say struggled, failed repeatedly in school. Uh, tried to find his way, eventually he did. Found his way all the way to Harvard, where he is uh, doing a lot of things, saying a lot of things that we all wish we could say as eloquently as him. He has written some of the most amazing books on the planet. His memoir is a book that I just finished that tells you his entire story from his time in on the farm to Mexico City to eventually college to Harvard and beyond. So today I've got the great Tony Wagner joining me. Tony, I am so excited about this. Dave, with that kind of an introduction, I think I better quit while I'm way ahead. <laughs> My goodness, I don't know how I'm going to live up to these expectations, but it's great to have a chance to chat with you. Absolutely. You know, Tony, there are a lot of people listening to this, watching this, that have read your words, have heard your story, have, have heard um, your, your, your points and your, um, your conversation starters around education and things that we need to do to revise, enhance, transform education, but they don't necessarily know your story or where your experience and your lens comes from. I know you've got a memoir, 300 plus pages that explains your entire journey, but do you mind just kind of taking us on that journey yourself right now from yeah. your time on the farm, to summer school, to your 12 plus years and K-12 education and, and the rest? Phew. Yeah, there's All a big question for just you. A half an hour. Huh? <laughs> Let's do it. <laughs> well, let me just backtrack just a tiny bit. Uh, about the genesis of my memoir, Learning by Heart and Unconventional Education. Uh, you know, I, I have written six argument-based books about education, mm. which you allude to. And I really felt I had no new arguments to make, but I had stories to tell. And I specifically had never told the story of how I became 
mission-driven in terms of wanting to transform education. So that was, that was a goal, what I set out to accomplish with learning by heart. Because in fact, you know, unlike many people who choose education, I was never good at school. In fact, I hated school. I was bored out of my mind. Learned to love to read at an early age, uh, found all kinds of informal uh, ways of learning that I enjoyed. You mentioned the summer camp where I studied with a genuine uh, Cherokee Indian and did uh, Native American dance and culture and studied with uh, an, an ax expert in axemanship and earned the equivalent of a merit badge. But as far as school went, uh-uh, just didn't happen for me. In fact, I was asked to leave my middle school. I then, in my senior year, in a very second-rate, all-boys, semi-militaristic boarding school, I left. I hated it. Couldn't stand it. Uh, and then uh, went to college, dropped out very promptly. Three months later, tried a second college. And uh, the story I tell of that is kind of interesting. Now it's 1965. I'm beginning to be involved in the civil rights movement. I'm beginning to be involved in the peace movement. And um, this is in Richmond, Virginia, mind you. Mm -hmm. And the dean of students calls me into his office. And this huge magisterial office with all these great portraits on the walls of famous Confederate soldiers and so on. And he says, son, he's twiddling his thumbs, leaning back in his chair. He says, son, we know all about your communistic homosexual drug activities. <laughs> and none of that was true. Well, only slightly true. I mean, I had dabbled a little in pot like many in my generation. But the other stuff, no, I couldn't wait to vote. I was an ardent Democrat, hardly a communist. And I was living with a woman at the time, so homosexuality was kind of out of the question for me. But at any rate, um, I just decided I'd had enough. I wasn't ever going to go back to college again. I went to work for a civil rights lawyer in Washington, D.C. I became even more involved in the peace movement. I became a conscientious objector. And so I had to do my two years of alternative service as a conscientious objector. started looking around. And lo and behold, I found this tiny experimental Quaker college called Friends World and uh, applied to be a student because what so excited me about the college was you studied social problems. No grades, no formal classes, and you got to travel to different parts of the world to study problems. So, and then I discovered I could actually also do my alternative service there, my two years of civilian work. So I spent really three amazing years at Friends World, including living for a year in Mexico, studying there, kind of immersing myself in Mexican culture, learning all about the Mexican muralists, whom I revere to this day. And finally, kind of salvaging my own education in a, in a semi-formal sense. Um, again, no grades, but I had really learned to study for myself. I'd learned to sort of take issues seriously and research them, think critically. Well, now what? Well, you know, along the way, I had met um, a, a disciple of Narayan, of, I'm sorry, of Mohandas Gandhi's, Narayan Desai. And, you know, being the hubristic young kid that I was, uh, I had a little bit of time with he and a couple of other people. And I said, so Mr. Desai, what is your definition of revolution? 
And he said, revolution is the dynamic process of changing individual virtues into social values. And suddenly it dawned on me, well, I'll teach. You know, I love writing. I thought I'd want to be a novelist someday. That's a whole other story. But at any rate, I just thought, well, that, that kind of puts me, you know, gives me a sense of purpose, a sense of mission, and maybe I can try to make my classrooms different than the ones I experienced as a learner. That led me to apply to the Harvard Master of Arts in Teaching program. They had never seen a transcript like mine, Dave. Believe me. No grades, this crazy stuff about studying social problems. But in fact, I think it's precisely because they hadn't seen a transcript like that, they accepted me. And, you know, lo and behold, I discovered I actually could do quite well on formal schooling, aced all of my classes at Harvard, even all of the education ones, which were incredibly boring and did in no way prepare me to be a teacher. And so then I launched on my what I think of as my first career. I spent 12 years teaching high school English and social studies first in a school, public alternative school for at-risk kids, then in a private school, in fact, where Chelsea Clinton went, where Obama kids went. And so try to tell the story of how I struggled to become a different kind of teacher, to become the kind of teacher I wished I'd had. And so the story went from there, but that's kind of the, the gist of the kind of first part of my life. Should be enough to get us going. <laughs> no, that's great. And for what it's worth, your memoir does read like a novel. You know, I think if people that don't know you will read it and almost feel as though they're going along this fanciful journey of a character who is reaching epiphany after epiphany after epiphany at these um, crossroads of their life. And that's that's what I felt with you, that you had these, these crossroads that kept bringing new enlightenment and new, new awarenesses to your life that you would have never predestined, that you would have never been able to foreshadow at the early stages right. of your life. You know, thinking about, again, your childhood on, on a farm um, and then going away to boarding school, uh, a father who's a, a World War II veteran. I don't think anybody back in those days would have predicted that you would have had a career advocating for the advancement of education. You know, when you look back on your life, it was moment after moment that layer upon layer. Was there a, a, a central crossroad that would have sent your life a completely different direction had it not happened? Was it friend world? Was it time in Mexico City? Was it, yeah. where, where was it? Well, it really was friend's world because by the time I dropped out of college for the second time, I thought I was done. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, there's no way I'm ever going to college again. There's no college I could ever imagine wanting to go to again. And I, I was working in a kind of subsistence wage job, working in the movement, civil rights movement, working for a lawyer in DC. And I just felt like, I don't know where I'm going. I mean, you know, the work I'm doing is interesting, meaningful, I'm learning something, but 75 bucks a week plus room and board, I didn't go very far. And so I, I honestly thought I had reached what potentially seemed like a dead end. Mm. And had I not discovered Friends World and the completely different kind of learning experience it represented, I don't know where I'd be right now, Dave. I really don't. And of course, through Friends World, I discovered the whole progressive education movement because Friends World was founded by a, a Deweyite, a disciple of John Dewey's, Morris Mitchell. 
and uh, through Mitchell I learned about Dewey. So it led me to a, a kind of an ever-broadening world uh, of learning and, and thinking that uh, might never have happened had there not been a friend's world. But yet, would you, would you agree that throughout your life you've always had this innate sense of being an activist? There's always a cause that you are trying to amplify and pursue and bring to the surface, whether it was back in the, the 60s or even the 80s or today. Do you feel like you, you're always taking the torch and lighting it to, to bring about a change? I don't know about the torch, or <laughs> but I think I'm to some extent a product of the 60s sure. or even going back to the late 50s. The world around me just made no sense, Dave. Mm -hmm. I grew up in uh, rural Maryland and then we moved to the Maryland suburbs of Baltimore. And I, I saw ex racism, experienced it firsthand and people who just were oblivious. And I grew up with a little bit of privilege that just the world made no sense to me, Dave. I remember, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis in 63 and thinking, my God, we're going to all get blown off the face of the earth. Is this world insane? And then the Kennedy assassination and then the King assassination. It was kind of one trauma after the next that made me feel, and again, a product of my age, that I wanted, had to be, mission-driven, had to in some way devote my life to trying to make things a little bit better. And I chose education as my domain. And within education, I think that's even a, a big overarching umbrella. When we say transforming education, it, it feels like, it seems like right now in the world of education, there are a lot of people amplifying their voices. Seems like everybody is writing books. Everybody's got a podcast. Everybody is trumping up their own thoughts, their own way of doing things. I feel like you're different. I feel like you're not trying to amplify Tony Wagner. You are doing an amazing job of trying to transform practices, ideas, methodologies, and mindsets. And you, you've got some of these things interwoven in your story um, that, that you tell, again, in this amazing memoir. Um, one of them deals with the idea of persistence, the idea that persistence is a value. It's a skill set that students need more than necessarily even the pursuit of passions that they need to have persistence. Can you expound on that a little bit? Cause I think that's, it's a powerful yeah. thought. Well, first of all, thank you for that very generous compliment. Um, I do agree that I think a lot of people kind of write or speak to hear their own voices. <laughs> I'm a little impatient with that. Uh, and in fact, I, I really wrote the memoir quite deliberately ending it at the beginning of what many people would call my successes, right? Mm -hmm. Before mm -hmm. I'd ever written a single book, uh, before I'd ever gone on uh, past graduate school, past doctoral program. And I did that in part because I wanted to help people understand, and this gets to the persistence question, the importance of learning through trial and error. These days, kids are so pressured to be perfect little human beings they're incredibly anxious. They're terrified of making a single mistake. Their parents believe that to be the perfect little kid is what's required to get into the perfect school, to have the perfect college, to have the perfect job and the perfect life. And my example is very different, right? I was hardly <laughs> any of those. And yet I've had a pretty rewarding and satisfying life. And so persistence is a part of that picture for me in the sense that 
I came to understand, and this was, mind you, at the height of what was then called the free school movement, mm -hmm. where, you know, everybody said discipline, oh, that's for authoritarians. You know, let the kids be free, let them go wherever and do whatever. Uh, and I immediately saw the destructive effects of that on kids. Mm -hmm. um, that we all need sort of parameters, but it can't be a kind of rigidly imposed ex external discipline from the top. It has to be evolved from within. And that's actually a muscle that can and must be developed. Persistence, tenacity, self-regulation, self-discipline. But it's, it, it best evolves in the context of pursuing real interests. Mm. So I think that's a part of the, one of the narrative themes of, of my novel and my life is how you know my interests do grow and they do deepen and in the process it's kind of like a spiral whereas the more my interests grow the more i'm able to concentrate and have a degree of self-discipline which i never had throughout school which in turn enables me to further deepen my interests and and eventually my achievements i think i think your life is a walking example to a lot of popular social theories, whether we talk Malcolm Gladwell in 10,000 hours or, or Duckworth and, and Grit or Mihai Chicks and Mihai and the idea of flow. I mean, it, it speaks to that. Stick with something, persist. But I, let me ask you this. Could some argue that you actually gave up on education? So how does persistence, <laughs> how does persistence fit into this, this narrative? Well, of it's interesting. I gave up on education at a pretty young age, but I never gave up on learning. Okay. And that's an important distinction, right? Because I was in fact, an eager learner, learner from a young age. Mm -hmm. I just hated school because yeah. <laughs> it didn't have much to do with learning it had way too much to do with memorization and following orders and, you know, being obedient, but loved reading. Uh, I tell the story of how I, I got this kit to create a crystal radio when I was like 10 and I figured it out. And I tell the story of, of learning from this full-blooded uh, Cherokee Indian and immersing myself in Indian culture. And so in a sense, my thirst for learning has continued to be kind of deepened through experience. So I think that's in part what led me to not give up on education. In, in a way, you might say, I wanted to close the gap between education and learning. Right. Too much of a gap. You know the famous quote attributed to, to Mark Twain, don't, don't let your studies interfere with your education. Well, that's kind of where I was. I wasn't gonna let my studies interfere with my learning. And, and now you're at this place in your life, which are, admittedly you've been there for a while, but you're at this place where you don't just look back and say, whew, I made it through. Thank God I was able to jump over all those hoops and navigate through. You are continuing to try to pay it forward and change the systems that you already circumnavigated, whether we want to argue successfully or unsuccessfully. Why is that? Why, why is that your life's work? Boy, that's hard to say. Why does anyone have a life's work? One of the things was that my experiences with schools were not just my own. I ended up having three kids two of the three really struggled with school. Uh, my son was a high school dropout, uh, never went to college, ended up five years ago getting a, a master's in government from Harvard. First kid ever to go to a graduate school at Harvard without a BA degree and has be become extremely successful. Daughter dropped in and out of K 
countless colleges. I lost count, literally, how many colleges she went to, but then went on to uh, get her degree, get a master's and, and become a successful educator and now runs her own tutoring business. So in other words, I've lived these experiences, not just myself, but through my own children. And that's a part of the motivation for me. I don't, I don't want my grandchildren, and I have four now, to have the same struggles in school that I and my kids had. And yet I see in some respects, things are actually worse now than when I was growing up. So if it's okay for us to unpack that a little bit, you used terms, success, and you, you just used the, the superlative of worse here. You know, in, in most likely to succeed, um, there's this amazing story being told again of what success might look like and how success looks to different people. There's also this argument that oftentimes we are measuring the wrong things. With yes. your own three kids, when you look back and say, were they successful in school? Are they successful now? Schools are better, schools are worse. Lots of success-driven criteria within that little statement I just made. What is success, whether individually, collectively for our systems? What should we, what should we be pursuing in our schools? Well, actually, I don't even like the term success. I try to avoid it. Uh, my question is, what do kids need to thrive, mm. which is a different yardstick. It's a different measurement. Now, thriving means a lot of things to a lot of people. But to me, it means a measure of self-fulfillment. Uh, you know, I think back to uh, Rabbi Hillel in the first century BC, who said, if I'm not for myself, who am I? Mm. If I'm only for myself, what am I? If not now, then when? Well, that to me suggests a measure of what it means to thrive. It means knowing yourself. It means being able to be self-affirmative without in any way being inflated but also knowing that we all have some responsibility on this earth to try to make a difference, if only in small ways, to try to give back. So to me, that's a measure of what thriving, I think, can look like. Uh, but it's never easy, right? Uh, the world is not set up to make it easy for us all to thrive, school being one of the first obstacles, uh, overcoming our own culture, our own backgrounds, our own childhood being another. So thriving sounds simple, but in fact, it's anything but. And is it the responsibility of school to teach children how to thrive? I think it is the responsibility of school to give kids the tools they yep. need to thrive, to learn how to reflect on mistakes and learn from them, to learn how to be more self-aware to learn how to be more aware of others. You know, along the way, I read, started reading uh, books, very kind of complicated books about education to try to justify my own approaches to teaching, which were largely intuitive and experiential. And I started reading the work of Jean Piaget, the Swiss developmental psychologist. And I came across a, a definition of education that he offered that has always stayed with me. And maybe it's a good definition of what schools need to help us thrive. He said, the goal of education must be to help us overcome egocentrism in two domains. Intellectually, he said, overcoming egocentrism means learning to reason, learning to weigh evidence, 
not to give in to superstition or uninformed opinion. Emotionally, he said, learning to overcome egocentrism means learning what he called reciprocity, but what I think we should more likely want to call empathy. Mm. So if you say, okay, the job of school is to help kids learn to reason, weigh evidence, uh, think critically, and also to understand and can be, have some awareness and concern for others, and ultimately to be able to empathize with others. To me, that goes pretty far down the road in terms of defining what we need to, th to thrive. I think some people listening right now are, are wanting to, to yell, preach, preach. But there's also this concern. You know, you, you mentioned Dewey, Piaget. I'm going to throw Wagner into that, to that uh, amazing trio that we now have. How did we drift so far off course? And is it possible to realign ourselves? Great questions. My own views, and first of all, I put uh, Ted Sizer, Debbie Meyer, and others from the 80s whose, whose shoulders I stand on. I, I'm just was a huge admirer of Ted's and still am of Debbie's, who's still alive. Uh, they were very much a part of the Dewey and progressive movement moving forward and from whom I learned a great deal. But in the 80s, uh, we became increasingly aware that we in education were not paying sufficient attention to data. Mm -hmm. We were leaving too many kids behind because we weren't disaggregating the data we weren't collecting it honestly, thoroughly, and accurately enough. And so we, we, and we also weren't preparing kids for the, the world of work, according to employers. Long, long story short, the standards movement begat the high stakes testing movement. Uh, and I think in the, into the 90s, what happened was we developed very high stakes tests that first of all, tell us absolutely nothing about college, work, or citizenship readiness in the 21st century, but much worse, began to seriously distort the purpose of education. The purpose of education, understandably, for far too many teachers today, is getting kids to pass these damn tests, to get, you know, get the, the accountability folks off their necks. Purpose of education for kids and parents today is to get high test scores so they can go to the perfect college. So I think we've become a kind of hyper uh, kind of test driven uh, education system. And along the way, we've lost the sense of what are the humanistic aspirations and goals of education other than a high test score. Yeah, and I don't know if this is just an altruistic uh, view of this, but it reminds me of a conversation I just had with somebody yesterday when we were talking about it's great to have goals but if your goals lead you astray from your ultimate vision what's the point i think here in in the states we have a lot of goals we want our students to be proficient in reading and proficient in mathematics but then when we start forcing all kids to take algebra 2 and calculus at the expense of x y or z or to read certain texts at the expense of x y or z all because we've created some arbitrary measure some arbitrary goal we've lost sight of that vision of how we define success or how we, what it is we want of our children and our future adults to be. Is it as simple as realigning that and bringing people back to that vision? Well, I think proficiency matters. And I think okay. we're never gonna to return to a time where we have zero accountability and we shouldn't. 
you know, we've got far too many kids who are being left behind, but that's more a consequence of poverty than it is of the education system. Let's be clear about that. Nevertheless, I think we should be accountable for making sure every single kid in our classrooms makes progress through the year. But <laughs> back to your question, I think proficiency is an inadequate goal. Uh, content and basic skills, academic content, basic skills matter. But in the 21st century, I argue motivation matters most. Because mm. if you're self-motivated, you will continuously acquire new content knowledge and new skills throughout your life, which I think is a prerequisite for thriving in the 21st century or even surviving. So to me, the question is expanding, again, the idea of, first of all, what should all high school graduates know and be able to do and be like? Secondly, what is the aim of education? Is it simply, you know, uh, a, a, again, a kind of minimal measure of proficiency on a test? I just think that that's kind of utterly thin gruel for our democracy. Agreed, agreed, agreed. And I know there are literally thousands of other topics that I would love to sit down and talk to you about from literally all of your books and global achievement. I don't know if you can even see over my shoulder, global achievement gap sitting over there, your memoir over here. I mean, I'm, I'm surrounded by you. I keep those on my shoulder. Like, I don't want to say the devil and the angel, but in reality, it's, <laughs> <My condolences. laughs> but they, they, they motivate and inspire a lot of good conversations and a lot of good thoughts. And I think we often have uh, taboo topics in education. We say, we don't want to talk about that. We don't want to stir the pot. You're one, I think that through research and data and your own anecdotal life experiences, you are able to, to stir it a little bit and have people have, uh, start the conversations that matter. And I, I really do appreciate that about you. I'm wondering though, as we start to, to wrap this up, if you had the opportunity to stir the pot or to, to drop the mic and have people just look at you and say, oh, yeah, that, that's what Tony wants us to think about or to remember or to, to pursue. What would that thing be? I do think that the challenge we have now today is to fundamentally rethink the education profession and how we best prepare educators along the lines of the themes I've already mentioned, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but I want to talk about two specific additional things. One is that I think we educators need to advocate for accountability 2.0. <laughs> Instead of being victims of accountability 1.0, we need to become advocates for better assessments. You know, I sometimes talk about wanting to create a bumper sticker or a button for every educator. And it would say, I'm an educator. Hold me accountable for what matters most. Mm. We're far often too reactive to the education debate. We're not proactive enough. We're not going to our professional associations and insisting that they develop an accountability 2.0 plan. And so unless until we have that, I don't think we'll ever be freed from the yoke of what I think is a very regressive accountability system. And along with that, a part of accountability 2.0 is transforming the highly isolated nature of the teaching profession. Isolation is the enemy of improvement, the enemy of innovation. One reason we have so little innovation in our classrooms today is because we teachers are so isolated. So along the way, I've come to very deeply believe that we must create communities of practice 
within the profession that learn to study and solve problems of practice. And that, you know, a PLC for an hour a week is not going to cut it. So there are profound structural changes needed in the classroom, uh, which enable us to be far more team-based that I think are prerequisites for moving the profession forward once we're freed from the yoke of a regressive accountability system. Boom. And that delivered it right there. You know, when I say drop the mic and, and make people think, that was it. It was it was practical. You you didn't just give us theory and and truly tell us to just abandon and start over. You gave us actionable steps, both on the personal level, get yourself connected. If you're not connected right now in this age, that's on you. So get yourself connected, continue to grow and have those conversations. That's point one. And point two is if you argue for less accountability, nobody will listen. There's not a politician out there that will say, yes, let's go with less accountability. It's a, let's hold ourselves accountable for what matters most. And now let's define that. I love that. So good and so meaningful. Tony, that was again, a great question. <laughs> I, I know I, I told you this before we, we started recording and, and I've been saying it at nauseum, but I really, truly appreciate you taking time to, to speak to me, to share your message, continuing to, to put words out there that will change individual lives, um, change destinies and transform education for the better. Um, you are, you are absolutely incredible and carving out time from your crazy busy schedule just to talk to little old me means the world. So I appreciate that. You're very kind, Dave, and you ask wonderful questions. You're a terrific interviewer. So you made it very easy and fun for me. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of Lasting Learning. Interested in learning more? Feel free to check out one of my books, like Making Assessment Work, for educators who hate data but love kids, or Bold Humility, or It's Like Riding a Bike, How to Make Learning Last a Lifetime. Just visit schmidto.net for more information, or feel free to check out Amazon.